If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you were with us last week for Easter Sunday, then you will recall we landed on the conclusion that what we believe about the future changes how we live at the present time. If you were not with us, or if you're like me and you just forget sometimes, uh, we proved that point up and illustrated it by an old thought experiment that's been around for years. We imagine that if there were two workers, both working a terrible, back-breaking job for one year, just barely getting by on what they were making. But one worker was promised at the end of one year $15,000, but the other worker at the end of one year would receive $15 billion. We then asked the question, would what they believe about the future change the way that they lived their lives in the moment? And as we thought about that, we said that we imagined one worker may grumble and complain and maybe even at some point give up because it's just not worth the effort. While the other worker, we imagine, would be able to endure, that they would persevere, that that second worker would keep going knowing that each day they were one day closer to everything they could ever ask for or imagine. And so we landed on that conclusion that what we believe about the future changes the way that we live our lives in the present day. And today we're going to pick up right there and we want to ask this question. What is it that Christians believe about the future that helps us to endure in the present? If it's true that what we believe about the future changes how we live now, then what is it that the Bible teaches us that we embrace as Christians that enables us to persevere, to endure, to live each day knowing that we are one day closer to all that we could ever ask for or imagine? So be thinking about that question as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 21 to 26 and then verse 51 to the end of the chapter. I will pray for us and then we'll dig in and look for the answer to that question from God's Word. Hear now God's Word from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning in verse 21. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so all in Christ will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that you have preserved lo these many years. And certainly, Father, one of the reasons you have preserved it for us is so that we might have our thinking shaped about the future so that we're empowered to live our lives each day, knowing that each day we are one day closer to all we could ever ask for or imagine. Father, we do ask now that you would give us understanding of these words you inspired through the Apostle Paul, that you would be at work in our hearts, giving us understanding about the future. And Father, we ask that you would be willing to do all of this, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Okay, if what we believe about the future changes the way we live at the present time, then what is it that Christians believe about our future that helps us to endure in the present? And as I look at this text and listen to what the Apostle Paul says, I see at least three things that Christians believe that help us to endure. First, we believe uh, the Lord gives us our victory over death. Second, we believe in a glorious and physical resurrection. And third, we believe that our God will make all things new. So let's look at those three things together. First, our victory over death. You heard that right at the end of the reading there in verses 55 to 57, where we see Paul writes, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the church at Corinth was concerned because when Paul wrote this letter, it was about 20 years after the cross. And so some believers, those who had embraced faith in the Lord Jesus, were beginning to die. And so the question was, well, what happens to these who have died? If the Lord comes back, what's going to happen to those who are dead? He writes the same thing and he answers a similar question in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And he says something very similar to what he says here. And the same question applies for us today. If the Lord Jesus tarries and he does not return for 50 or 100 or 150 years, then that means one day all of us, within the sound of my voice, one day we will all die. As we think about that, we don't really like to think about it, do we? We live in a culture that doesn't like to talk about death, doesn't like to think about death. We sort of have a fear of death. I think that 20th century Welsh poet Dylan Thomas captured the sentiment of our age well when he wrote, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. We hate death and we fear death and we fight against death with all that we're worth. For some, 
this fear of death is just because it's an unknown. It's just something that we're not sure about. Nobody can tell us about it because they haven't been there and come back. Uh, certainly, that's what Shakespeare has Hamlet say in that famous to be or not to be speech when Hamlet refers to death as that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. It puzzles the will. It makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. So just the unknown of death sometimes can make us fear it. Also, when we start thinking about the possibilities, none of them sound really good to us. If death is annihilation, if we just cease to exist, then that would mean the loss of the ability to live, to love, to think, to act, to feel, to relate to anything around us. It just has such a sound of finality to it that we no longer exist, that we never again are around our loved ones, that we lose them forever, and when we die, we lose contact with all of those things. It seems so final. Or the other alternative is that it's not final. If we're not annihilated, then what happens when we die? Is there some type of judgment? That's what Paul writes about here in verse 56 where he says the sting of death is sin. You see, when we die and we reach the end of all things, we tend to reflect back on our lives and all of us have a sense that we have fallen short. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you take a, a standard most people would accept even outside the Bible, something like the golden rule uh, that says that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto you. And when we reach the end of our lives and we reflect back, we know that oftentimes we have not lived in that way. And so subjectively, we feel condemned. We feel that we fall short. And if there is some accounting, we know that there is a debt that we owe. We subjectively feel that's the sting of death is our sin, the fact that we fall short. But Paul goes on. He says the power of sin is the law. What Paul is saying is that we don't just subjectively feel like we fall short. We actually objectively fall short. Not just that we feel guilty, that we actually are guilty. Because there is a standard that we have fallen short of, and that standard is God's law. And so if we get to the end of all things, and some of us will admit and say, yes, we have regrets, we fall short. But even if it's, we don't feel that, there is a standard that we fall short of and are objectively guilty before a holy God. But for Christians, we don't have to fear death. You see, it's not unknown for us. There is one who has traveled into that far country and has come back, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to the Apostle Paul and taught him these things. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 8, Paul will write to this church that when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. So while our physical bodies may be in the ground, our spirits are with the Lord in heaven immediately. We're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord, which Paul says in Philippians 1 and verse 23 that that's better by far. So for Christians, death is not something that is unknown, and it's not annihilation. And for the Christian, 
there's not judgment. That's why Paul says in verse 57, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do we have that victory through the Lord Jesus Christ? We'll go back to the first week in April, Palm Sunday, April the 5th, when we looked at the beginning of this chapter. In verse 3, we read there that Christ died for our sins. That debt that we owe where we fall short, that Jesus has taken the punishment for our sin, that he died in our place to pay the debt that we owe. And in verse 17 of the text, it says that his resurrection shows that that debt is paid. It says that if, we, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sin, verse 17 tells us. But if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, then it shows that he has paid the debt in full. Some have likened it to a divine receipt, that Jesus' resurrection is a receipt that we have showing that the debt has been paid in full for all time. So if that's what Christians believe, how does that change the way that we live in the present? Well, think about it with me. It means that we don't have to live for ourselves. It means that we don't have to get it all now. Think about that. What are your deepest desires? Many of us long for acceptance. We want to belong. Many of us long for significance. We want to matter. We want to know that we've made a difference in this world. Many of us long for security. We long to know that everything will be all right. And unfortunately, in a broken world like the one we live in, we will never have any of those things perfectly. But we will have them in the world that is to come. So while we don't have them in this world, we have them in the next. And that changes the way that we live in our present day because we know we can cope with the imperfection of those things now because we know a day is coming when we will have those things perfectly after death at the end when God makes all things new we will finally get those things that we long for perfectly for all time so that's why Paul mocks death here in the text that's why he says where O death is your victory where O death is your sting he's saying death you don't deny us those things. You are the gateway to those things. And that changes the way that we live in our present. Think about it. We can endure now with imperfect acceptance or significance or security. We can be less demanding of the people around us that they give us those things now in a way that fully satisfies because we don't expect to get them perfectly in this life. In fact, we are freed up to actually begin to give those things to other people because we don't have to have them now even as we point them to that day which is the only time that they can have those things fulfilled completely and ultimate satisfaction of those longings. If you long for those things, acceptance to belong, significance to know that you matter and make a difference, security to know that everything is going to be all right, if you long for those things, it's because you long for God to make all things new. And you long for that day 
that he will make all things right because you were made to live in the perfection of Eden without all the sin and brokenness in the world. So we can endure now even with things being imperfect because we know a day is coming when God will make all things new. So our victory over death changes the way that we live at the present time. But secondly, our glorious physical resurrection also changes the way that we live at the current time. Look with me at verses 21 through 23 of the text. Paul writes, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Do you see what Paul is writing there? He's saying death came through a man, through Adam. We talked about that last week. But the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, through Jesus. And he identifies him as the first fruits. So Jesus is the first one to rise. Jesus is the first one who has resurrected from the dead. So it says he's the first fruits. Then when he comes, when Jesus returns, those who belong to him, those who have died in Christ, When he returns, they will be raised from the dead in a physical resurrection. Their souls, which have been with him in heaven, will rejoin their bodies. Again, Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, uh, beginning there as well. Well, what about those living when the Lord Jesus returns? What about those folks? What if he came today while we were still alive? Paul answers that question as well, and that's in verse 51 of the text. That's where he writes, Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, which he's using as a euphemism for death. We won't all die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal must clothe itself with immortality. Do you hear what Paul is writing there? That for those who remain, our bodies and souls have not separated, but at that last trumpet that it sounds when Jesus returns, and the dead in Christ, their physical bodies come out of the ground, their souls reunite with their body, that what happens to those of us who are here when the Lord Jesus comes, that we are changed. In the twinkling of an eye, that we become new. And that these bodies that we have now that are perishable, in that they die, they become imperishable. We get bodies that won't die. They are mortal in that they break down and decay. We will receive bodies that are immortal, bodies that don't break down, that don't wear out, that don't get viruses, that don't get cancer, that never again break down and die. Now, we don't know exactly what our glorified bodies will look like. We know they're different than what the bodies we put in the ground. We know that they will be more glorious. We know that they won't break down, that they won't die. But as I read the scripture, Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who will rise from the dead. And so seeing the body of the resurrected Christ gives us some idea of what our resurrected bodies may be like. And if you'll recall, the Lord Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he walked here on the earth. He talked to his disciples. He taught them things. With the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he sat at a meal and broke bread with them. 
He ate fish with the twelve who touched him because it says that he was flesh and blood. It was a physical resurrection. Jesus built a fire on the beach. He cooked and ate breakfast with his disciples. Again, he taught them at that time. And in our glorious physical resurrected bodies, we will do all those things as well. We will walk on this earth. We will talk to one another. We will teach and learn things. We will eat together. In fact, Jesus says many will come from the east and the west and will sit at the table where we will have a feast. Isaiah chapter 65, talking about the new heaven and the new earth, tells us that we will build houses and live in them. So we'll construct things. It says that we'll plant vineyards and then enjoy the fruit of our labor, that we will eat, that we will harvest crops, that we will have wine, and that we will drink fine wine together. It says that, uh, Isaiah 65 tells us that we will enjoy the work of our hands, that we will produce things, that we'll still be creative, and that we'll enjoy that work of our hands that will never decay or wear out. Now, how does our belief in that future of that glorious physical resurrected body, how does that change the way we live in the present? What helps us to endure hardship now? In verse 32 of our text, Paul writes about how he fought wild beasts in Ephesus because he knew the dead are raised. That if he was killed in the midst of that difficult circumstance, he could face difficult things and do difficult things because he knew a day was coming when he would rise from the dead. If you're in our men's Bible study that meets on Wednesday nights, we've been meeting online, I would encourage you to join us. We talked about Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and how he wrote about his hardships there, about how he had been imprisoned, how he had been beaten five times with lashes. Forty lashes were supposed to kill you. He had received 39 lashes, just short of death, five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was pelted with stones and left for dead three times. He was shipwrecked four times. He spent a night and a day at sea. He went without food. He went without drink. He went without sleep. And why? Because he wanted to see the good news of the gospel advance. And he was willing to risk it all to see that happen because he knew a day was coming when there would be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, Revelation 21 says. Revelation 7 tells us that never again will we hunger, never again will we thirst. And that means that we can endure those things now because they're temporary. And because we know that we, what we have is eternal and in the light of eternal glory, these things that we face now are mere passing shadows. So we can endure in the moment because we know that that world to come is forever. So we're able to endure because of our victory over death, because of our physical and glorious resurrection. But thirdly, we're able to endure because we know our God will make all things new. That's the earth that we will be resurrected into. And we see this. Let me show you in verse 22 of the text and following. Verse 22. That's where we just read, but each in his own turn will be resurrected, right? Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Verse 24. Then the end will come 
when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he, Jesus, has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now think about what this is saying with me. It says, Jesus has been raised as the first fruits. That at the trumpet, Sam, when he comes back, the dead who are in Christ will rise after that. And it says, then the end will come, verse 24 says. And it tells us that at that time when the end comes, Jesus will hand over the kingdom to God the Father. Now that word kingdom, don't think of that as a realm, a place where he lives. Because the word kingdom there is really used more of, of, of rule. It means an administration of justice. It means that at the end, Jesus will rule and reign over all things the right way, that he will make all things right as he administers justice. It means all that opposes God will be subdued. And when it talks about all dominion and authority and power, it is telling us there will be no power of any kind that opposes God. It will be subdued, that there will be not any kind of power that is not subservient to or under the rule and reign of King Jesus. And so all things will fall under his rule, and he will rule them rightly. He would administer them rightly. And then it says the last enemy in verse 26 to be destroyed is death. Well, what are the enemies he destroys before that? It's what we talked about last week in Genesis 3. All those things that came into the world as a result of our not living life the way it was designed to be lived. So on the way to eliminating death, it means Jesus is going to do away with shame and fear and blame and hate and pain and decay. And then ultimately the last enemy to be destroyed, verse 26 says, is death. Basically, it's what that great theologian Dolly Parton says in that song, Light of a Clear Blue Morning. If you haven't listened to it, it's a great song for quarantine where we live right now. Dolly Parton's Light of a Clear Blue Morning. She says in there, everything's going to be all right that's been all wrong. And that's what the Christian believes, that God is going to make all things right that have been all wrong. Well, how does that change the way we live as Christians at the present time? Well, it means that we fight hunger because we believe in a physical resurrection, that God cares about the body. It means that we fight homelessness. It means we fight injustices like racism or oppression, oppression from within a person or oppression that comes from without. Because we know God will eventually end all those things one day, so we fight to push back the effects of the fall this day. We long to see Jesus rule and reign over every area of life on this day. And as we fight for those things and see that they become the way he designed them to be, we do so and we persevere in doing good now because we know a day is coming when God will finish the job. That's why Paul ends the chapter in verse 58 by saying to God's people, Therefore, so in light of all that, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It is not for nothing, because one day God is going to finish 
the job. Oh, that we would be that kind of a church. That what we believe about the future would change the way that we live in the present. Let me just close by pointing out that, did you know this has historically been true? In the history of the church, what we believe about the future has changed the way that we live day to day. Just a few examples. First, when epidemics hit in the second and third century, you know this is not the first epidemic to hit the earth. It's not the first one the church has faced, right? There were epidemics, smallpox, other things in the second and third century. And while non-Christians would flee the city, would run away if they had means, and if they didn't have means, non-Christians would stay in the city, but instead of quarantining the sick, The well would stay in their house, and if somebody got sick, they would put that person out in the street to keep the family who was quarantined safe. Christians did not leave for the country. They stayed in the cities that were populated, and they didn't put the sick out in the street. They cared for the sick and even cared for the sick family members of other families who were not Christians. Why would Christians have that kind of compassion on the sick? Also, when persecuted, when uh, the Christian church was persecuted and, and unjust executions took place, Christians didn't curse their oppressors. They didn't respond with terrorist tactics or guerrilla warfare. They went to their death joyfully, peacefully praying to their God. What enabled them to face death in that way? Or... When Rome was conquering all the nations around them, and they had conquered all the nations in the area, there were open borders for the first time in history. And so the cities of the Roman Empire were multi-ethnic. Many cultures would come together, and there was a lot of ethnic tension at that time. Did you know that the Christian church was the first institution to bring people together across racial, across ethnic lines? Why would the early Christians be so ethnically inclusive? Why did they have compassion on the sick? Why did they face death the way they did? It was because what they believed about the future changed the way that they lived their lives. And that ultimately changed the world around them. They weren't afraid of death. So they stayed in the cities and cared for those who were sick, even the sick belonging to other families. They didn't retaliate against their oppressors because they were going to a better place and they knew that God one day would judge all people rightly. And so they didn't have to at this time. And they knew that even though the people around them believed that each nation had their own God, Christians believe that there is one God over every nation and that he's gathering people from every tribe and nation and people and tongue and language to be in his family. And so the Christian church was the first to say, it doesn't matter what your ethnic background is. Race doesn't matter. Social status doesn't matter. Whether you're rich or poor doesn't matter. That there is one God who is the father of all. And so they included different racial, multi-ethnic, and different classes of people together for the first time in one institution. Oh, the church has always been a people who had what we believe about the future change the way that we live in the present. And in the past, that has changed the world. 
Oh, may it be so in our present. May the Lord make us that kind of a church. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Oh, Heavenly Father, would you use the people in this place, the people within the sound of my voice, I just pray that what we believe about the future would so grip our hearts that it would change the way that we live our lives in the present. And as we live more and more the way that you designed life to be lived, I just pray that your kingdom would come more and more on earth as it is in heaven and that your will would be done in this place for your glory and for the good of all. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.